Lord Jesus. If you have your Bibles, let's turn together to Psalm 73. We're going to read verses 25 through 28. Psalm 73. The psalmist comes to uh, see uh, the judgment day for the wicked and sees God in his glory by faith. And he says, as his testimony of experience of God's goodness, in Psalm 73, verse 25, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Turning to the New Testament, let's look at Philippians 3, verses 7 uh, through 15 uh, together. This will be the text from which the sermon will come. We will focus on verses 7 through 15 of chapter 3 uh, this morning, uh, Lord willing. This is God's Word from Philippians 3, verses 7 through 15. The Apostle Paul says under the inspiration of the Spirit, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Most holy and loving, merciful God, full of steadfast love in Christ for sinners. We thank you that you are the triune God. We thank you that you're the creator of heaven and earth, that you are the redeemer. We thank you for your revealing yourself very clearly in all creation, in making your uh, works of the law known in our consciences, and especially revealing yourself in the scriptures and in 
the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that as your people were gathered today uh, to come unto you through the mediator, you have provided your own beloved son, and through his precious blood were made clean. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that uh, you are with us. You've promised to be with your church from till the end of time. And we thank you that you are always with us. You will never leave us nor forsake us, and you never change. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the risen, ascended, enthroned King of kings and Lord of lords, and we acknowledge and bow before you this morning. We ask you as our King to subdue our hearts further and more fully uh, through your word. We ask that as our priest, you'd continue to pray for us, that uh, your word would be effectual, that we'd have ears to hear, hearts to receive, and minds to understand, and that as our prophet, you would speak through your servant. Help your servant that he may decrease, that you, O Lord, would increase, and you be glorified. We pray that you'd fill us all full of your spirit, and that we'd leave here transformed and changed by your grace and power. We pray in Jesus' name, and all the church said, Amen. So we're going to look together, beloved, at Philippians 3, verses 7 through 15 this morning. Before we do, I want to ask you three questions to be thinking about. I think when we approach this passage, a good way of application, a good way of uh, opening our hearts before the presence of God is asking these three questions. And then at the appropriate time, by God's grace, I will uh, show us how these questions uh, should be answered. But the first question is, who is the most precious person in your life? Who's the most precious person in your life? Be honest before God. The second question is, what is it that you call your greatest accomplishment? What is your greatest advantage in life? This is where you would be tempted to boast or to make known in conversations who you are. This is where you tie your identity to uh, the answer to this question. And the third, what's your all-consuming life goal? What do you live for? What are you passionate about? Because this passage points us to the Lord Jesus Christ who gives us these three very, very important answers. So let's look at this passage. This is a sermon entitled Gaining Christ, and we'll look at it with two points. The first point will be on gaining Christ. The second point will be on growing in Christ. So first point, gaining Christ. Paul wants us to understand in this passage that to gain Christ is to gain the greatest gift that God has to give. That it is to gain Christ is to find a perfect personal righteousness that's a gift from God, that's given to sinners in Christ, that's received by faith. It is a glorious gift, but it's more than just a gift, it's a person. It's that we never want to forget uh, the wonderful John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his son. He gave His Son in His life, in His death, in His resurrection, in His ascension, in His ongoing heavenly exalted ministry by His Spirit, so that we could gain Him, that we could know Him. And this is what Paul wants us to understand about 
gaining Christ. In Paul's theological imagination here in this larger passage, he's thinking like an accountant. And he's thinking back to the things that he used to call profits or gains in one column. And then he's looking at his losses. And there were things in Paul's life that he looked to as gains at one time before Christ. These were his uh, privileges that he had by birth. Uh, These were his advantages, we would call them, that he was born uh, of the tribe of Benjamin and knew what tribe he was of after the exile, that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, that he was in the covenant, the visible church, in that he was an Israelite, that he had even been circumcised on the eighth day. He had these advantages that he saw were gains. It was how he measured his worth, his righteousness before God and others. But he also talks of his accomplishments throughout the scriptures. Paul will talk about his education, his advancement in Judaism. Here he talks about being a Pharisee. And with regard to zeal as a Pharisee, he's like Phineas of the Old Covenant, who would take the sword in his good intentions even to the church because he thinks that it's something wrong. There's a zeal he had. Of course, we know it is a zeal without knowledge as he mentions in Romans 10, but it is a zeal like Phineas, and he prided himself on this. And so Paul had these advantages. He had these accomplishments. He had these things that others applauded him, but not God, but not God. And those were the things he looked to for his identity, for who he was, He can recite it just like that. But earlier in chapter 3, verse 3, he said that the true Israelite, the true Christian, the believer, are those who worship God because of what he's done for us in Christ. That the true believer are those who will glory in Christ, not boast in themselves, in their advantages, their accomplishments, in the approval of men. They'll not boast in those things or glory in those things. And third, They're the ones who put no confidence in the flesh. And so Paul says, what I used to think were gains are insignificant, nothing. They're the the scum on the bottom of my boot. They're worse than dung in comparison to Christ and knowing Him. In comparison with Christ and knowing Him, beloved, You see, because Paul's not looking back and losing vices, he's losing virtues that many men and women would like to have in the ancient world. These were things that brought him applause and approval, acclamation, approbation. And there's loss if they in any way hinder you from gaining Christ. And so Paul says, here's my greatest gain compared to all of those things I once put my confidence in. The greatest, uh, most precious relationship I confess and live out today is the relationship I have with Jesus Christ. 
And he puts it like this, verse 7, Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Nothing will be in the gain column in comparison with Christ. Nothing will be in the gain column ever again that would in any way hinder him from knowing Christ, from growing in Christ, from gaining Christ. He says, um, indeed, verse 8, I count everything as lost because of that surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things. Now I consider them rubbish, dung, scum. Because he says, I want to gain Christ. I want to be found in him. I want to know him. Those three things are similar things. He wants to gain Christ. How do you gain Christ? You gain Christ by being found in Him, in union with Him. You gain Christ by knowing Him. And so that's why I ask you in the beginning, what is your most precious relationship? Because Paul looked at all of his connections, all of his relationships, all of the people that thought well of him, and he said, I have found the most precious treasure. I'm going to sell everything else I have, and I want to follow Jesus to get this treasure. He found the precious pearl of great price. Our Lord Jesus asked the question, what does it profit anyone if they gain the whole world? All the acclamation of men, all the approval, all the outward righteousness, the good behavior, the reputation for being a good person. What does it profit you if you gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? And so Paul tells us that the most precious relationship that we should have is in that knowing Christ. You see, he says in verse 10, he wants to know him. And three particular ways. This knowing is experiential. It's not just a bare uh, head knowledge. It's not just a knowledge as he once had to say, well, I have the sign of the covenant, or I'm a member of the visible church. He had already boasted in those things. Those things are glorious privileges to be in the church, glorious privileges to have a sign of the covenant like baptism today. Wonderful signs. But... They must point properly by the Holy Spirit to the relationship with Christ. So the knowledge he's talking about is a day-to-day, lived-out, experiential, marriage-like relationship with Jesus. He wants to know Him like that. He wants that to be His most precious relationship. He wants to say with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? And what on earth do I desire but you? My flesh and my heart may fail me, but the Lord is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, all the good things that God had blessed him with, he used as a foundation for his hope. He thought well of himself. He boasted in them. But now he boasts in Christ. The three ways he wants and teaches us to know him is that we'd know the power of his resurrection, that we would know that we've been raised with Christ and seated with him, that his victory is our victory over sin. His victory is our victory over death. His victory is our victory to persevere by faith to the end. 
His victory is our victory. That resurrection, that being able to live above our circumstances because Christ is with us. That suffering even unto death, he tells us that he wants to know him, the power of his resurrection, to share his sufferings, to share in those sufferings, to know that, yes, there's a crown promised in Christ, but first, there's a crown of thorns. The crown of thorns always precedes the crown of glory. The humiliation precedes the exaltation. You see, beloved, Paul's saying that in his daily life, that he's not only sharing in Christ's victory, but he's also sharing in his daily sufferings. That those sufferings that he has in being rejected now because of what he believes, of the persecution he undergoes, of the pain. My friend does war reenactments, and he reenacts certain events so that people will get a deeper experience or knowledge of history. It's living history. But what we're called to, what Paul's teaching us, that we're called to, this glorious knowing Christ is a fellowship in his sufferings where we experienced in some ways a reenactment of Christ's rejection, of Christ's persecution. But yet the confidence of having the Father's love and presence with us to endure the Father's love to be with us. The Son by, him, by His Spirit with us always. But it's a suffering that we invite. Not because we like pain, not at all. But because we want to know Christ. And we know that we in ourselves are not humble people. We're very proud people. We're people who indeed uh, think of our own resumes uh, of self-righteousness to have oftentimes a right standing before God and others, to think better of ourselves. We tend to do that. The suffering in Christ helps us to remember his humiliation, his love even unto death for sinners, to remind us that if he humbled himself and became as a servant even unto death, as Paul says in Philippians 2, then he's calling us to the same. And Paul, when he says this dying, this suffering that he experienced and becoming like him in his death in verse 10, you see, he may be really talking about martyrdom, that his chains in his estimation will lead him to martyrdom, but he is talking also about how he says elsewhere, I die daily. That he's learning that in the sufferings are reminders to humble himself in Christ, to depend upon Christ's power. To know that when he's weak, the power of Christ rests upon him. And then he says, to know him so well through that resurrection, through even that humiliation and suffering, that one day he'll experience the exaltation, the crown of glory, that he'll finish the race. He'll fight the good fight, he'll keep the faith by God's grace, and he'll finish the race. And this attaining of the resurrection of the dead... Paul's not saying it as if it's something that cannot happen. He's saying it in the sense that it's through the means that God's given us in union with Jesus, in our experiential daily knowledge of him, that we will enjoy this future event of resurrection just as he's enjoyed the resurrection. It's what he says at the end of this chapter in verses 20 and 21, that our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior 
Verse 21, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He's thinking about that wonderful day of resurrection that is to come. And so he says to us that in gaining Christ, in gaining the person of Christ, we come to experience a greater, deeper knowledge of Christ. But the foundation for our righteousness before God is not found in anything we give or do for God at all. It's simply found in receiving the righteousness that God provides for sinners in Christ. That God is pleased in Christ's sufferings to uh, cause him, and he willingly went to the cross to take upon himself the wrath of God in our place so that that perfect righteousness he lived, that faithful, perfect record he lived before the Father can be imputed to us and received by faith. The foundation is not faith. The foundation is Christ and His faithfulness, His complete, perfect, righteous record that's given to us. And based on that foundation and then built on an ongoing relationship with Him that includes resurrection, that includes suffering, dying daily, that includes the hope of the glory, the exaltation one day, we know Him, we gain Him. So who is the most precious person in your life? Have you found the pearl of greatest price? Have you realized that all of your gains, the things that are your advantages, the things that might bring you approbation, approval, applause, have you realized that these things, while they're gifts of God in His providence, they can also become damning and dangerous if you make them your right standing, if you put your hope and trust in them? And I think, beloved, this is a good place to think about a distinction that we must always make. It's a distinction between formal righteousness and functional. You may have heard this distinction before, but say a formal righteousness is that we would, like Paul, base our salvation on our advantages, on our accomplishments, on our works. That's blatantly damning. And we must repent when we realize that that's what we're doing. But there's a more subtle form, and it's functional righteousness. You see, this comes out especially when you're upset with someone. Okay, You start talking or thinking or going over your resume. You start thinking in your mind about your advantages, your pedigree, your family name, your degrees, your beauty, your strength, your intellect. It's the places where you are functionally tempted to, at that moment, to consider that again in contrast to someone else because we have this self-righteous tendency in us and that's a subtle danger. See, not only want to flee from formal self-righteousness, but functional. Those things you must acknowledge, the advantages, the things that bring us applause, the things that, uh, that, that, that have been good things that God has given to us, accomplishments, things we frame, pictures we take, 
uh, pictures we post, all of those are gifts of God, but don't ever let them become your functional righteousness because you're putting your trust in them. And that's where we have to say, I don't want those. I'd rather lose all those than to not gain Christ. So, beloved, remember when we're thinking of this righteousness, that it is a, a righteousness that each day we can uh, learn to repent of, a functional righteousness where we want to give thanks for those things that God has given us, but we do not want to put our trust in them. We do not want to think of ourselves as better than others. Very important that we think about this when we think of the gaining of Christ, the knowing of Christ. The second point I want to focus us on is that growing and maturing in Christ. And the growing and maturing is on that foundation of that righteousness that God gives. But it is now a, 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 an earnest a pursuit of who we already are in Christ. Now, this sounds very strange, doesn't it? You could almost say it like this, as long as you're careful, that Paul's saying, you have a perfect righteousness personally imputed to you in Christ. But then he says, but you're not perfect yet. That there's a perfect, you've been once and for all declared righteous in Christ, received his righteousness by faith. You will always be righteous through that imputation, that one act, that declaration of your being righteous in Christ. But then he says, but you want to pursue who you already are. You want to pursue that. You want to grow in that. You want to mature in that. And that brings me to that third question I ask is, what is your all-consuming life goal? What is it you want to do? What is it that keeps you up at night? What is it that, that stirs your energies? Paul wants us to see that it is the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, look at verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. And then he says something we want to note in verse 15a. He says, those who are mature, same word used for perfection. Those who are mature, he's using a little play on words here. Those who are mature, or otherwise those who are perfect, think this way. That they haven't arrived yet, but they seek to press on daily toward that goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Let me talk about that for a moment. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus is that which is given in the beginning of our conversion. It's when God calls us and then justifies us in our union with Christ. Romans 8, 29 and 30, that those whom he has elected, those he's called, those he's called, he's justified. It's that upward call. And though justification's once and for all, the pursuing that upward call is that ongoing pursuing of that prize. And that prize is ultimately Jesus. It's ultimately seeing him face to face. It's ultimately knowing him and seeing him as he is, being like him, being fully transformed, being glorified, as he said in verse 11, the resurrection from the dead, as he talks about in verses 20 and 21, the transformation of this lowly body to be like his. And so he presses on. 
And beloved, this is uh, what we want to think about each and every day as we think about uh, this pressing on. There's a few things that I think we uh, should uh, focus ourselves on. The first is what verse 12 says, that none of us have made it yet. We're not home yet. We are pilgrims seeking to make progress in our relationship with Christ every day. We're pilgrims seeking to make progress. But we're not there yet. And we must acknowledge that. Because it's very easy to be tempted to think of oneself higher than we should. We've already looked at that. But then to think of ourselves as perfect compared to others. Perfectionism in the church has been a danger uh, for the last 2,000 years. Uh, Movements of perfectionism where people think they can get to a place where they're no longer willfully sinning against God. But they forget. We can forget motivations that are wrong. We can forget uh, of times when we're thinking thoughts that are displeasing to God. We can forget our words. We must be reminded that none of us are perfect. We say that quite easily sometimes. Oh, nobody's perfect. But we need to believe it. It endangers us because the Bible says in 1 John, as we read today, as our absolution, uh, as our pardon of sin, it tells us twice that when we say we have no sin, we call God a liar and the truth is not in us. So we must understand that while we have a perfect righteousness, we are not yet made perfect in Christ, in that uh, being fully uh, glorified. And so Paul says in verse 12, I press on to make it my own. The second thing we want to remember about this pressing on is uh, not only that we must continue making progress by God's grace through the gospel. But number two, very important, our motivation is always the gospel. What Paul's saying is that I am seeking to take hold of Christ because he's taken hold of me. This is not him trying to seek to grab, to grip, to embrace Christ with hopes that Christ will embrace him back. He's been embraced in the upward call. He's been embraced in union with Christ. He's been embraced in his being declared righteous. He's been embraced in his gaining and knowing and being found in Christ. But he is uh, realizing that to be embraced means that he wants to uh, pursue all the more, all the more deeply, earnestly, that uh, gaining of Christ or that uh, making Christ my own. And verse 13, he says again, Brothers, I do not consider I've made it my own. Again, he says this is not something I find in myself. As much growth, as much uh, progress as he's made, he does not see that he has made it his own. But one thing he does, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to to what lies ahead. Paul's using this runner language. He uses this in 1 Corinthians 9, that in his race, in running the race, he would beat his body into submission, that nothing would hinder him from running this race. He uses the running the race language at the end of his life, where he says, I have run the race with perseverance. 
He uses this uh, running imagery in other places. It's interesting that when he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, uh, gives him three images to think about being a pastor, he uses the three images of soldier, athlete, and farmer. And that's a different sermon. That's another sermon another day. But the second point is important. Paul had in his mind this idea of athlete, of rigor, of diligence, of determination, of self-control. And he wants us to learn this. He says, one thing I do, one thing that's on my mind, one thing is passionate in me, one thing that drives me zealously now is not my own self-righteousness, but it is forgetting what lies behind, not looking back, not even looking around and being distracted, but keeping his eyes on Christ, keeping his eyes on the goal. What are there back there in your past that's keeping you from running as heartily, as fervently, as diligently, as determinedly as you might? What's haunting you back there? Paul's saying, every day as we get up, beloved, remember where your righteousness is. Remember who loves you most in Christ and remember to press on forgetting the things that are behind the sins back there that have been forgiven the weaknesses the foolishness the mistakes forget those things behind don't let them continue to haunt you so that you stop to turn around and look at them you're not looking at the goal And they're the things that cause us to be flabby, to get out of shape in our running this race before us. The thing that keeps us strong and diligent and determined is keeping our focus on Christ and that he's called us to this, that we have our hope in him, that he has a prize for us in seeing him face to face and glorifying the church and restoring the whole creation, making sense of the things that we have in our past that he's forgiven. And what is it around you that would distract you in this race? Things today. One thing that's glorious about the Lord's Day is it's a day to give of rest and worship. It's a day of worship and rest, but it's a day to help us to keep our eyes on the goal to seek first the kingdom in all its righteousness, to be kept from distractions, but how easy it is to be distracted even on this gift of a day, this holy day, this holiday that we're given once a week at the beginning. God wants and has given it as a gift so that we would learn not to be distracted, to have that word impressed upon us by his spirit and to be reminded of his love for us in Christ, and to endure, to not be distracted by the world around us, the temptations, and even in the trials, to remember that they have a purpose, as we learned earlier, because we're reenacting, not the death of Christ as a atoning, propitiatory sacrifice, but reenacting the movement of the death of Christ from humiliation to exaltation. And so... 
Paul says, one thing I do. One thing that we want to have in our head as uh, David before him, as the psalmist, as Asaph wrote in Psalm 73, is that we want to have this singular, wholehearted devotion to Jesus because he has taken hold of us. When you think of a father who's run to his uh, frail uh, son, his toddler son, and the father has come to embrace and bring that son up into his arms, and that son does everything he can to hold on to dad. But it's not the son's holding on to the dad that keeps him from falling. It's the dad's got the grip on him. And that's what we want to remember, beloved, is he's got his grip around us. Nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing in heaven on earth, life and death, nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And we need to be reminded of that. And to be reminded of this uh, one thing one thing to be passionate about, one goal, forgetting what lies and straining forward to what lies ahead. And we see this hope at the end of our journey when we shall see him face to face, where much of what we experience now that's a mystery will make more sense. When all the seeds that we've sown, all the prayers we've prayed, where we haven't seen results fully, beloved, we will spend all eternity enjoying uh, the things that God has done that no eye has seen nor has even entered into the imagination of man what God has prepared for us who love him, as 1 Corinthians 2 tells us. And so Paul says, remember, remember as you're learning to grow, as you're growing up, your singular one wholehearted, devoted focus is this, that you grow up in Christ. That your greatest goal, our greatest goal together, is that we would grow up and mature in Christ. And so let's go back to the original three questions and ask ourselves those three questions I think are very useful in approaching this by way of application. The first is the question, who is the most precious to you? This passage is teaching us to gain Christ, to be found in him, to know him experientially, to grow in that relationship with him, to know the Father's love in its breadth, its height, its width, its depth, to be filled with all the fullness of God. That's our, our, our hope, to, to find him all the more precious. And the second thing that we want to ask ourselves is, what, what is it uh, in our advantages or our accomplishments that we can tend to uh, measure ourselves by, measure our worth? To put it another way, is if you lost those things, it wouldn't just hurt you, it would, it would devastate you deeply. And this righteousness that is formal, that we want to repent of, self-righteousness, uh, putting trust in works, but there's also functional self-righteousness that's more subtle. So how do we answer those things? We should answer those things something like this, though it sounds strange, it's true, that what's your greatest advantage? It's that you're loved by God in Christ. And I would even go so far as, what, what is our greatest accomplishment? It's not ours, it's his. His accomplishment for us. 
that's imputed to us. That's what makes us right before God. That's what, who we are ultimately before other people. And we'll be vindicated and declared as such on that last day that we're looking forward to. The last and third thing that we want to answer is, what is our life passion? That all-consuming life goal. Let it be this, this one thing, that you forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead, that you press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Because this is what Paul says, those who are mature think this way. Beloved, let us gain Christ and let us grow in him and continue that journey and that wonderful pilgrimage of joy that we have as those who've been loved by God. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're so grateful for your love for us in Christ. We're so thankful for the way that you have forgiven us all of our sins. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all our sins. And Lord, we thank you for the advantages you've given us. We thank you for the accomplishments. We thank you for anything that we have done that uh, you have uh, given us the strength to do it. You've given us uh, your kind providence. You have uh, been a good and kind Heavenly Father. What is it that we have that we've not received? If we've uh, received it, then why do we boast about it? Help us, Lord. Forgive us when we boast, when we glory in something, uh, a kind of self-righteous resume rather than Christ. Help us to see the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Help us in Christ to have that one thing that we pursue uh, that we would uh, seek to embrace Christ as he's embraced us, that we'd be motivated by the gospel each and every day, that we'd press on uh, to uh, endure to the end by your grace. And we know that it's ultimately uh, because of your grace, your power, your prayers, Lord Jesus, that our faith will not fail us. It's because of your Holy Spirit of holding us, strengthening us, and encouraging us. So we pray, encourage us by your word now, transform us by it, and help us to continue to pursue gaining and growing in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all the church said, Amen. Amen.